Welcome to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, presented by the Institute for Biblical Worship at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's right, I said the Doxology and Theology Podcast, a podcast for worship leaders who know that the gospel is so good it has to be sung. I'm your host, Matthew Westerholm, Associate Professor of Church Music and Worship at Southern Seminary and the Executive Director of the Institute for Biblical Worship. On today's episode, we are dipping into our worship resources to bring you a clip by Dr. Zach Hicks. Zach Hicks is canon for liturgy and worship at Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. He is also the author of the fantastic book, The Worship Pastor from 2016. In this clip taken from our 2021 conference, Zach Hicks asks the question, what does it mean for a worship leader to be a theological dietitian? Hey everybody, my name is Zach Hicks and I'm really thrilled to be with you. In our modern day and age, the quintessential task of the worship leader is the selection and leading of congregational songs. And I don't know if 21st century worship leaders like you and me appreciate just how heavy and sacred a task this is. Now, in my way of thinking, we were led to this kind of cultural moment, this lack of awareness and appreciation by three problems. Historical amnesia, liturgical erosion, and resource overload. So let's talk about the first problem of historical amnesia. Some churches have trouble remembering what song selection was like before the dawn of the modern worship leader. But the truth is that it was only several decades ago that the whole business of choosing songs made a radical shift. You see, prior to about the mid-20th century, songs were selected in a very different way for the vast majority of churches. While a local worship leader may still have selected songs for a given Sunday, what many people don't appreciate nowadays is that even before the choices of the local worship leader or pastor or minister of music, there was a selection process before the selection process. Many churches were part of denominations that had hymnals, and those hymnals were carefully curated by committees of pastors and theologians and musicians. Those teams of people use their varying gifts and expertise to analyze those hymns and worship songs according to agreed upon criteria. The theologians made sure that the hymns were biblically sound and in line with Christian orthodoxy. The pastors made sure that those hymns covered all kinds of life experiences relevant to their people. The musicians made sure that the songs were singable, beautiful, and musically fitting to the text. These teams served as gatekeepers and filters in the best of senses. They did the hard work of unburdening the local worship leader from those kinds of pressures and considerations. What worship leaders these days don't realize is that we don't have those teams assisting us anymore. In a way, we're kind of left to ourselves to embody all that collective wisdom. That's a big deal. So that's just the first problem we face that generations before didn't have to face. The second problem involves what I call liturgical erosion. Now, when I talk about liturgy, don't tune me out if you're part of a non-liturgical church. There's actually a reason you're part of a non-liturgical church. 
somewhere in your church's or denomination's past, and I'm potentially talking like hundreds of years ago, your church's leaders made a conscious decision or convicted decisions to depart from certain aspects or many aspects of the historic liturgical worship that they inherited. I'm not interested at all in evaluating whether those were good or bad decisions. In nearly every case, I think that the motivation was out of a genuine desire to be faithful to God and faithful to his scriptures. But I want to simply point out one of the effects of moving away from a more structured and defined and historic and patterned liturgy. You see, the historic liturgies of the church did a lot of the heavy lifting when it came to making sure that the church's doxology was filled with good theology. The content of the prayers and the structures of the services, they all helped train people in the knowledge of God they were worshiping, helped guard orthodoxy, and helped root Christians in a sense that they were part of a historic community of faith that spans generations, centuries, even millennia. In that liturgical context, the worship songs of the church took a supporting role. They were connected to the gospel message of the liturgy, and those songs existed to amplify the message already there. Now think about this. Imagine what happens in traditions that move away from liturgy and start to fill those gaps with more songs, song sets, extended times of singing. All of a sudden, there's a giant hole. The rich theology, the gospel-centered shape, the historical connectivity, all those things were eventually eroded from the worship experience. And worship songs that once took a supporting role in worship must now bear more of the weight of what the liturgy once provided. That's why we're hearing all these cries these days for worship songs filled with good theology. Because of liturgical erosion, our worship songs need to accomplish so much more than they used to. That's the second problem that many generations didn't have to face. Finally, we need to acknowledge a third problem, resource overload. Because of the internet, you and I have exposure to more potential resources for worship than ever. You and I have the impossible task before us of having to sift through worship albums, Spotify playlists, indie worship artists producing their own music from every corner of the planet. And those old hymnal committees could have never foreseen a day and age when we would have to select from a constantly renewing list of thousands of new worship songs every year. It's impossible. And I don't know about you, but for me, it's sometimes paralyzing. So here we are, historical amnesia, liturgical erosion, and resource overload. We've inherited this really complex system where the weight of our song selection is on our shoulders, and that weight has never been heavier or more pressurized. We worship leaders have become our congregation's hymnal committees and liturgists and internet curators. So what do we do with this inheritance? Two things I won't really talk about are, well, prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit and maybe attempting to tether yourself to communities to help do this work in a less solo fashion. So those are important, but I want to just give us one idea, a metaphor, a way of thinking about our job that might help chip away at this big mountain called song selection. My suggestion to you is that with song selection, a worship leader is a theological dietitian. I'm going to say it again. A worship leader is a theological dietitian. 
I really like this metaphor, by the way. I think it has a lot of mileage for worship leaders who really want to think pastorally about the art and craft of song selection. We're going to spend the rest of our time focusing on four simple ideas that flow from the mindset of a theological dietitian, and here they are. Number one, we strive for a balanced diet. Number two, we develop criteria for food selection. Number three, we carefully introduce new foods. And number four, we aim for long-term health. If you didn't get those, no worries. I'll make them clear as we go. So, number one, we strive for a balanced diet. Every dietitian knows that man shall not live by protein alone or carbs alone or grains alone. Our bodies are complex and we need the varied nutrients that those food groups provide for our physical health. So it is with our spiritual health, actually. The diet for a healthy spirituality is varied and diverse. In fact, it's as complicated as life is with all its ups and downs and highs and lows. It's not a coincidence or mere symbolism that one of the Bible's most often used metaphors for itself is food. Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Or Jesus' strong words to the devil when he broke that liar's mouth in the wilderness, quoting Deuteronomy 8, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, if the word of God is food for our people, and if our songs are supposed to be means of conveying that nutrition to our flocks, then the content of our songs needs to mirror the nutritional breadth of that word. How do we wrap our minds around that? The Bible's big, and it's not necessarily a manual for song selection. Here's what I'd say, dietitians. Pray for the Spirit to give you a hunger and thirst for God's word. The more you study it, the more you meditate on it, the more you soak in it, the more it simply becomes your mode of thinking when you choose songs. But to get a bit more practical, we can take some advice from reformers Martin Luther and John Calvin. They were both big proponents of the Psalms. Luther called the Psalms the little Bible. What he meant by that was that if you took all the Bible and you prayed that back to God, you'd have the Psalms. And Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. If you steep yourself in the Psalms, you are consuming all the varied nutrients of the Bible in worship song form. It's why my favorite reformer, Thomas Cranmer, advocated praying through all the Psalms once a month in his Book of Common Prayer. Cranmer knew that if the people of God are regularly praying the Psalms like Jesus did, actually, they're spiritually eating from a full diet. And here's the payout for song selection. The more you consume the psalms, the more you will start to notice the holes and the gaps in the nutrition of the worship songs that you're listening to and feeding to your people. Gosh, we don't have a lot of confession. Or, Gosh, we're not leaving room for lament and suffering. Or, Gosh, where are the cries for justice and the restoration of the Lord? All of a sudden, you're choosing songs with eyes wide open. It might be a great idea for you and your worship team to take a retreat, divide up some of the psalms, and then compare it to your planning center top 30 song lists. A lot will be revealed about your congregation's diet. So that's the first point. We need to strive for a balanced diet. Number two, we develop criteria for food selection. 
This is where thought and prayer and discipline come in. Every dietitian knows that if you don't create for yourself a clear plan, clear rules of what you will and will not put in your diet, you'll be enslaved to unhealthy cravings of your base appetites. Similarly, we theological dietitians need criteria. We need to be able to list reasons for why we will select certain songs and why we will avoid others. Developing these criteria, if you haven't done it already, would be a great thing to do with your worship teams or with your other pastors or church leaders. I wish we had time to go into the details of this, but here I'm simply going to give you what I've developed over time. Feel free to fill in the gaps and disagree and pick this apart, whatever. Hopefully it gives you a starting place. Five criteria. First, is it singable? Is the song and its rhythm and range easy for a congregation to sing? And I think this question is local and contextual. It depends on your cultural background. What's singable in one context isn't necessarily singable in another. Second, does the music complement the lyrics? I've sometimes come across songs that are great musically and fabulous textually, but the two don't fit. Sometimes it's a song about joy that's incredibly slow and lifeless musically. We need to think of music as a kind of frame for the text, kind of like a good frame surrounds a piece of art. We don't want it to distract or overwhelm the text, but we want it to amplify the truth of the words that we're singing. Third, is it theologically precise? And here I don't mean theologically dense or tedious. A song can be simple and theologically faithful. I simply mean, does this song give me the ability to think thoughts about God that are true, right, and good? Or does it leave room for me to believe that God is something that he's not? Or to believe that I'm something I'm not? Fourth, is it aimed Godward? For me, I'm less worried about the pronouns of a song. Many of the Psalms are filled with me and I language. I'm way more interested in the song's orientation. When I sing about me, does it stay with me or does it orient me toward God? I always want the aim to be Godward. Fifth, is it in line with the gospel? Does this song pump me up, throw me back on myself? Or does this song push me to rely less on myself and more upon Jesus and his finished work? Grace alone, faith alone, through Christ alone. All right, hopefully outlining my criteria was helpful. Now on to number three of being a theological dietitian. We carefully introduce new foods. Think with me about the psychology of being a dietitian. If I'm trying to get someone who is unhealthy, overweight, and used to eating poorly to change the patterns of their diet, I'm going to have to introduce new, foreign, and healthy foods to them in a slow and patient manner. Someone used to cheeseburgers and soda and shrimp Alfredo isn't going to just immediately trade all of that for kale and beets and aha sparkling water. That's not sustainable nor would their system tolerate those new substances readily. So what does a dietitian do? She tapers the diet over time. So say you read Psalm 51 and you become convicted that your local congregation needs to do more confession of sin. If you just start out next Sunday by shoving the Book of Common Prayer confession of sin down their throats, your congregation will spit it back out and fire you on Monday. You may need to coat that kale with a little chocolate, if you know what I mean. 
Perhaps for a few months, you simply up the frequency of familiar worship songs that have a little bit more of confession-y language. Or perhaps you extemporaneously lead prayers that pray some simple apologies to God in the middle of your song sets. And then maybe over time, you fill out the rich confessional language by placing a psalm of confession on their tongues. Or you introduce songs that do a better job with the full breadth of confession. Again, when you're thinking like a dietitian, you're aware of the deficits in the diet of your congregation, but you're thinking strategically and patiently about how to introduce or increase the consumption of lesser utilized food groups. And now on to our final point. Number four, we aim for long-term health. This is actually where the first three points come together. Balanced diet, criteria for food selection, introducing new foods. When we think about those three things, we can get overwhelmed. Similar to the way a dietitian might be overwhelmed by how much work needs to be accomplished in the life of her unhealthy client. One of the things that eases the pressure is that moving toward health isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. No quick fixes. Slow growth and transformation over time. And this means that we can be absolved of the pressure of thinking that all the nutrients of the Psalms need to be present in every worship service. It's not that every meal needs all five food groups, but it's that over the weeks and months, we will need a balance of it over time. This is why we need to be disciplined as worship planners and leaders in fighting the slavery of the tyranny of the urgent. It's a good practice to plan worship services in chunks and sets with a wider scope over weeks and even months. It's a good practice to take annual inventory of the diet you've been feeding your flock. But if we're so stressed and pressured that we're only able to think about one week at a time, we may be setting ourselves up and our congregations up for poor health. For me, in addition to the weekly grind of plugging in songs to Planning Center online, I have a Google Doc that simply has the date and some song ideas. That view allows me to more easily see the forest for the trees and to see the arc of my congregation's diet over time. Some people use Planning Center's matrix view too, and some people take day retreats or two or, two or three times a year and map out whole sets of months of worship songs. However you administrate it, though, the important point is to create the space and time to do the long-range evaluating and planning. This space gives you the room to think like a dietitian and plan like a pastor. Well, there you have it. If you want to go further in this shameless plug, I might recommend my book's chapter on the subject and even chase down some of those nerdy footnotes so that you can learn from the people that I learned from. I want to end, though, with a scriptural prayer and a blessing for you now from the book of Hebrews. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Peace, everybody.
That is a hard place to stop, but if you'd like to hear more, go to our website, biblicalworship.com. Click podcast. We're happy to share with you the entire thing for free. While you're at our website, you can find information concerning other worship resources from the Institute for Biblical Worship and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's biblicalworship.com. That's what we have for you this time on the Doxology and Theology podcast. Our show is produced by the lanky Evan Jarms, engineered by Caleb Sherwood, and the music is by our good friend Joel Nagus. Until next time, this is Dr. Matthew Westerholm reminding you that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. Peace be with you.